No better. There we go. There we go. I like that. Yeah, light, 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 light. No better message for us on Christmas Eve than to get back into 1 Kings. So I, I want us to get back into 1 Kings chapter 18, one of my favorite Old Testament stories this morning. Since the beginning of time, God has made two things crystal clear. Two things God has made crystal clear over and over. The first is that he is real. God has made it clear that he is real. And the second truth that God has made clear to us is that he is to be obeyed. He is real and he is to be followed. And God has not left that message. He's not deviated from that those central truths. In the Garden of Eden, both Adam and Eve knew those to be true. They knew who God was. They knew that God was real and they understood who he was. And that understanding led them to know God is to be obeyed. God is to be submitted to. God is in charge. You could say it this way. God was leading and they knew that they were to follow. That message was true throughout the Old Testament. Israel, God's people, they learned that message over and over. And the prophets repeated that message that they needed to return to God and know that God's real and obey God and follow God. That's always been God's message. And that's the message that Jesus proclaimed in the New Testament and the message that his disciples carried to the ends of the earth as the gospel spread. God is real. Believe in Jesus as Savior and follow him as your Lord. Sadly, a lot of people only embrace that first truth. They believe that God is real, but they don't actually understand who God is. Many people would affirm that they know God, they, they know God is, is real, they believe God exists, but they actually don't live like it. They make little to no effort to get to know God, they don't read his word, they don't submit their lives to, to, to him, they don't obey. You could say they don't follow God's lead. God, through his word then, he, he helps us understand this very important truth. God doesn't just want you to, to know him and then live as if that doesn't really matter. No, understanding who God is should have a huge impact on your life. You don't just need to affirm that he is the creator and the savior, that he's the holy one and righteous judge and king of kings and the one and only and true God. God's desire isn't that you simply admit that those things are true. No, understanding those realities, those truths, those are meant to lead you to do something. Those are meant to lead you to action. Those are purposed to make you want to follow him. God's desire is that you would know him and then willingly, happily, joyfully follow him. God wants you to be saved, of course, and then live a life of obedience to him. God makes that clear. 
because of who he is, that he's real, that he is the creator and sustainer and savior and king, because of those truths, then God should have priority in your life. God is to be loved. He's to be first. What's that priority look like? It looks like that. He's the savior who's to be obeyed. He's the king to whom I submit my life to. Probably why perhaps some choose to believe that there's no God at all, called atheists. The the implications of there being a real God are too high. If God is real, then the demands of of, of following, they're too heavy. It's too difficult. So easier than just to believe that there's no God at all. If God is actually real, then he, he needs to be followed. That's where many people who think they believe in God start to fall Short. They might believe that there's a God, but they don't actually want to follow him. They want to pursue their own interests. They want to obey their own desires. They want to serve themselves. It's more fun. They want to believe in God, but they don't really understand who God is. Maybe that's some of you here this morning. Believe in God, but I don't really want to follow him. I, I, I hear the Bible being taught, and I do think God is real, but I'm not quite sure I'm ready to submit my life to him. If that's you, I, I want you to know, number one, God wants you to know that he is real, and that knowledge is meant to lead you to the most natural, obvious conclusion that you should obey him that you should submit your life to him, that you should follow God. That's our big idea this morning. God is real and I should follow him. (coughs) In other words, it isn't enough to say that you believe in God. It isn't enough just to say, I think God's real. Your knowledge of God is meant to lead you to follow him. Your Theology is meant to provoke discipleship. Those are big words. Let me just say it this way. What you know about God, it's meant to lead you to follow him. First Kings chapter 18. If you're not there yet, please open your Bible and we'll read God's word together. First Kings 18 verse one. <clears throat> the word of God says this. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah (coughs) went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called Obadiah who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly for when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord. Obadiah took a hundred prophets. He hid them by fifties in a cave. He provided them with bread and water. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we'll find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went one way by himself. Obadiah went another way by himself. Now, as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, is this you, Elijah, my master? And he said to him, it is I go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. 
Verse 9, Obadiah said, he said, What sin have I committed that you're giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord your God lives, there's no nation or kingdom where my master is not sent to search for you. And when they said he's not here, he made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. And now you're saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah's here. It'll come about when I leave you that the spirit of the Lord will carry you where I do not know. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he'll kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? That I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. And now you're saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. He will then kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and he told him and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I've not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have because you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you followed the Baals. Now then send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Who is the real God? That's what this section is asking. And and really more, it's arguing that, that Yahweh, that the Lord, he is the real God. And since that's true, he should be followed. I just want to take a second and get us back into our story before we press on in the narrative here. Let's get back into it. Elijah and Ahab and Baal, who are all these people? What's going on? Let me help. Elijah, he's the prophet, okay? He's God's prophet, and he told Ahab, King Ahab, back in chapter 17, Ahab, that Baal-worshiping king and his wife Jezebel, who seems to make it her life's mission to exterminate all the prophets of God, he told them at the beginning of chapter 17 that there would be a famine, there'd be a drought. And that was a form of judgment on the people of God and especially on this king in Israel for their idolatry. They had stopped worshiping God and they began worshiping this false God named Baal. No more rain, no more dew, which really just implies no more food and no water to drink. Why was God doing this? Again, they abandoned God. God was not being followed. He was replaced with Baal. And so God brought a drought. Not only is that a huge problem for the people here, but that's a a bigger problem for this false God named Baal. Why Why is that? Well, Baal's believed to be this fertility God. Baal was credited with bringing the storms and he was the one who produced a good crop yield. And he's the one who everybody thought was like the lightning and fire and rain God. He was responsible for a bountiful harvest of grain and oil and all that stuff. It was believed that, that Baal, some, some think that he could rev- was credited with being able to revive the dead and heal the sick and also bring life. 
The pagans believed that Baal opened and closed the womb, that Baal was the one responsible for you being able to have children. So God declaring that there will be no rain, that's a big problem for Baal. It's a big problem for his worshipers. And verse 2 of our chapter here in 18 says, this famine is severe in Samaria. Looks like Baal isn't able to do what he says he can. So before God sends rain, he wants Elijah now to go back to this wicked king named Ahab and tell him God is about to send rain once more. This is not going to be Baal regaining his strength. This is not about Baal finding his powers once again. Not at all. This is about God allowing the rains to fall because he alone is the one and true God. So how will people know? How will they be able to tell? How can they be sure that it's God and not Baal? Who is the true God? Let's find out. So here in verse three, we meet this man named Obadiah and he's an amazing guy. He fears the Lord greatly and he serves God by hiding these prophets during the time of, you know, Jezebel's death squads. And he's a little bit afraid of telling Ahab that Elijah's been found because they've been looking all over. And Ahab's you know, kind of crazy about it right now, trying to find him. And he's worried that if he tells Ahab, I found Elijah, and by the time I get back, you're gone. That's a pretty good way to get yourself killed. No thanks. Verse 15, Elijah, he promises Obadiah, look, I'll be here. And then verse 17, Ahab and Elijah finally meet again. It's time to find out who the real God is. Elijah asks that Ahab bring all the prophets of Baal and Asherah and all the sons of Israel. Let's do this. You meet me on Mount Carmel. Now verse 20. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. And Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that's a good idea. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourself, prepare it first for your many, call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. And they took the ox which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. Came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice for he's a God. Either he's occupied or gone aside or is on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. 
<coughs> excuse me. So they cried with a loud voice and they cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered and no one paid attention. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood, and he cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. He said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and it consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Not really much of a God contest here, is it? So many things to highlight and to just draw your attention to. Let's start with this one. Number one, let's say this, God removes all doubt that he's real. God removes all doubt that he's real. How does God do that? Well, let's start with geography. God isn't limited by location at all. Verse 19, Mount Carmel, this is the place where God and Baal will face off, probably chosen by Elijah for a reason. This is Baal's mountain. Mount Carmel was sacred ground for Baal worship. If you've ever played sports, you just know it's just home court advantage. That's what's happening here. And what is God saying by saying, I'll come to your turf? He's saying, Baal is no match for me. I'm real and he isn't. You can give Baal every advantage possible. The supremacy of God is not undone by Baal's claim on some mountain because it's not Baal's, not even close. Psalm 24, one says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. God is real. He proves it by giving Baal the advantage, eliminating the excuses Let's do another one. God's really proves that he doesn't need numbers either. Look at verse 19, mentioning the 450 prophets of Baal. 
Another 400 prophets of Asherah. Down in verse 22, Elijah says to the people, I'm all by myself here. I alone am left a prophet, and even Baal's prophets are 450. One verse 450. Another 400 watching on. All the sons of Israel kind of there watching on. Maybe a small point, but God is not undone by a small cheering section. God is not outnumbered. He's not scared by his lack of popularity. God is real, and his acceptance doesn't determine his existence. Uh, A pastor from when I was in junior high, high school, he used to say this all the time, what is popular is not always right, and what is right is not always popular. And I think that's very true here. God proves that he's not popular, but that doesn't mean that he's not real. God always has home court advantage. God is never outnumbered, and he can also overcome the impossible. Let's drop down to verse 32. Elijah, after (coughs) repairing this altar, does something kind of crazy. He digs this trench around it and then orders that these four jars of, of water be Uh, be filled with water and dumped all over this altar and all over that sacrifice. And since we've done it once, may as well do it a second and even a third time. Elijah understands nature. He hasn't forgotten what is natural. I mean, just wet stuff doesn't burn. And he knows that, but he intentionally makes it impossible so that when God does send fire, it will be unmistakably clear. There will be no other explanation for this. This has to be an act of God. Only the real God can do something like this. God needs no advantage. God is never outnumbered. God never lacks powers. Nothing is impossible for him. God's so different than Baal. He doesn't need that home court advantage. He doesn't need numbers. He isn't limited by the natural order of things. He's also not limited by man's actions. God doesn't need us to do anything in order for him to act. He isn't dependent on man for anything. Very different from Baal. Jump back up to verse 26. The prophets of Baal, they they call upon him from morning to noon and they're dancing and limping and leaping around this altar that they'd made. They're they're calling out to Baal, crying out, cutting themselves, mindless and empty chanting, kind of an annoying repetition. And I love that finally Elijah, he, he has to interject with a little humor a little mockery, a little ridicule. He knew that they believed that their pagan gods were human-like, and so he just taunts them about that. Cry louder. Maybe he just can't hear you. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's really like deep in thought about something else, and you just need to get his attention. He's, he's occupied or gone aside. That's a nice Bible way of saying, oh, he's in the bathroom. Maybe your God is, you know, occupied. He's on a trip. Maybe he's asleep. (laughs) 
prophets of Baal don't get his humor. They only take Elijah's words at face value. They work harder. They scream louder. They cut themselves more, desperately trying to gain the attention of their God all the way until late in the afternoon. But verse 29, no voice, no answer. No one paid them any attention. Needless to say, no fire. And now verse 36, Elijah prays. Lord, let this people know that you're God. This was part of your plan. I've, I've acted at your word. Answer me that this people may know that you, Yahweh, are God. In verse 38, the fire of the Lord fell it consumed that burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licks up the water. It's awesome. Before we get to the application, just notice Elijah didn't have to dance around all day. He didn't have to cry out for hours and hours and hours. He didn't have to badger God to manipulate some kind of response. There was no blood necessary from Elijah. God didn't need Elijah to do anything. It's a good reminder that we don't need to do stuff to secure God's action. We don't need a flurry of religious activity to to get God's attention or to earn his response. I think sometimes even a young believer can be tempted to think that way. If I just do more religious stuff, maybe God will answer. I know I need more, I just need more devotions. I I need to be, you know, more time serving and I need to be just memorizing more Bible. I need to take better notes. I need to sit in the front row. I need to go on more missions trips. I need to sing in the youth choir. That'll do it. If I do those things, maybe God will answer my prayer. And listen, all those things are great. All those things are awesome, but not with the intention of manipulating some sort of response from God. God doesn't act that way. More stuff, more reps. No, no. Jesus says in Matthew 6, when you pray, don't use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him, Jesus says. Pray then in this way, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If God is your father, then a God-focused prayer like that one or the one that Elijah prays is more than enough. God shows you that he is so different. He's real without a doubt, and he doesn't need you to do anything to help him prove it. He's the real God and the only God, and when his fire fell, the people watching fell also. They fell to their faces. They proclaimed... The Lord is God. This Yahweh, this Lord, he is God. God is clearly the real God, not limited by factors that we might think are important. Doesn't need advantage. Doesn't need popularity. Isn't limited by the impossible. 
not limited by man in any way. God is the real God. He's also a gracious God. Man, really fast. Number two, God reminds us that he's gracious. Verse 31, kind of have skipped over it, but I wanted to point out you, to you this one interesting truth. God reminds us that he's gracious. Verse 31, Elijah rebuilds the altar. And the author lets us know that he used 12 stones to represent the tribes of Israel. And in case you forgot, Israel at this point is divided into two parts, 10 tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. And in a sense, Elijah's declaring what has happened isn't right. Israel is 12 tribes. You've lost your way. Let me remind you of what God intended. Let me remind you of who God says that you are. And it's important for all God's people to know that no matter what happens, there still remains a way to God. No matter how bad things have become, God is still accessible. Why do I say that? Well, the fire that burns up that burnt offering, it's really important. Uh, And it's also sort of a rare thing. Back in Leviticus chapter 9, Verse 24, at the benediction of the tabernacle, we see something so similar, fire and burnt offering being consumed. And then where Solomon actually consecrates, not the tabernacle, but the temple, the same scene unfolds. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles 7.1. Again, fire falling from heaven, consuming the burnt offering. Two times that happens. Now God, again, showing something similar. When it happened at the tabernacle and when it happened at the temple, God was was showing his people that their sacrifices and their worship were going to be acceptable through that altar. That was the way God said, this is how to do it. And I'll show you that this is real. And I'll prove to you that this is how I want you to approach me. And he sent fire from heaven to prove it. This is how it should be. This is how you can be forgiven. This is how you could be made right with me, that altar. Now here in 1 Kings 18, we have a reminder of how God graciously offers access to his people. God's fire consuming that altar was proof that Elijah's sacrifice was accepted but it was meant to make them realize what they had neglected. This is real worship. This is what you should have been doing all along. That altar, that place where God's people can now see again, forgiveness is available. Access to God is possible. That's how God said to do it. And we forgot. What hope and joy and grace in that altar that God shows and reminds his people once again, this is how you approach me. God is not only proven to be the true God, but also proven to be truly gracious. Christmas time, of course, it reminds us of the birth of Christ his birth announced by the angels, and they foretold how Jesus would save his people from their sins. 
He would die on the cross, making a new way for people to be made right with God. The altar was replaced. We now have something so much better and so much greater in the cross of Christ. We no longer need altars and sacrifices because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and his cross is the better and final altar. Israel was lost and God graciously pointed them to the altar and those who are lost today in rebellion and sin, they need to be led to the cross of Christ. This is how to do it. This is how to be forgiven. This is the way God says you approach me. Cross is our only way to approach God, no matter how bad things are, no matter how deep the sin. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This joke of a God contest resulted in God clearly demonstrating that he's real that he's gracious. <clears throat> Since those are true, the choice to follow him, it really shouldn't be that difficult. Junior hires, knowing God isn't enough. That's where it begins. That knowledge is meant to drive you and lead you to the understanding that he is real and he is gracious to save you. And those truths should make you want to joyfully follow him. It's not an option for Jesus to be your savior and not your Lord. If God is God, then follow him. Father, thank you for this morning. What a great reminder of who you are, God, that you are real and that you are gracious. God, how you've always provided a way for people to find you and access you and worship you, follow you. Thank you for the cross that truly provides such access to you, Father. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the birth of Christ and his life and his ministry, which paves the way for us to be forgiven of our sin. Pray that you would help us to to know that it's not about our works. It's not about anything that we do. It's only about the cross. Pray you'd help these young people know how badly they need to be forgiven Lord, I pray that their knowledge of you would lead them to a desire to follow you the rest of their life. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.